This week, we're taking issue with commitment, or the lack thereof. President Biden wins big in Michigan, but the uncommitted vote does make a dent in his victory. The Supreme Court is going to rule on whether Donald Trump is immune to prosecution in a January 6th case. And what's going on in Fort Point? I'm Corey. I'm Matt. I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment. And this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I'm Corey Smith, joined as always by Sue O'Connell, my Ad Issue co-host and NBC10 Boston political analyst and commentator, and NBC10 political reporter Matt Pritchard. Uh, guys, we appreciate you being with us again another week. Um, let's start in the state of Michigan. Another big victory for Biden and Trump as they continue down the path to a rematch in 2024. But the big two storylines coming out of the election is the uncommitted vote in the Democratic primary and a large swath of Republican voters once again saying they are not going to vote for Donald Trump. We'll start with the Democrats. Joe Biden taking more than uh, half a million votes in the primary, winning 81% total. But it's the uncommitted vote, the folks who are uh, very much opposed to the president's handling of the situation in Gaza. Um, they went in there and more than 100,000 of them voted uncommitted. Now, this is not new in the state of Michigan. Uncommitted has been on the ballot before. In 2012, the last time a Democratic incumbent won, 12% of folks voted for uncommitted. So this time around 13.2% an increase, but, but Sue, this time a much more vocal reason as to why these folks voted uncommitted. Yeah, obviously there are a number of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans and Palestinian Americans who live in Michigan and they're expressing their unhappiness with the way that President Joe Biden has been handling the Israeli-Hamas war with the mounting casualties that we're seeing every day uh, in the Gaza Strip. And as you point out, Corey, it's, it's, uh, I, I also wonder if we all had the opportunity for a none of the above or uncommitted on all of our ballots what that baseline number is. But this 100,000 does qualify as something significant that the Biden campaign should you know, pay attention to. At the same time, uh, even if we assume 70,000 of them are voting in uh, protest against Joe Biden, uh, I think we can pretty much guess that most of them uh, are not going to turn towards President Trump former President Trump to vote for him in the general election, especially with his really draconian and drastic immigration policies. The Muslim ban immediately comes to mind. So, uh, but what this is, is a protest vote. And like in the polls that they do very early uh, when asking voters what they're gonna do far in the future, it's an opportunity for these voters to express to the Democratic Party and to Joe Biden that they're unhappy about something. But again, we know, I spoke to some uh, Biden campaign officials uh, over the week, they are definitely working on trying to make sure they are reaching those voters, talking with them. And as we get closer into general election time, I think uh, we'll see some people get in line and some people will continue to, to protest. Matt, what did you make of the, the sheer amount of, of uncommitted votes and just their, their, their vocal nature as to why? You can't, you can't fault them for, for being vague on why they voted uncommitted. 
Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see just how many of them choose to stick to that vote once we get to the general election. I know Sue was sort of alluding to that. 100,000 people or so, that certainly is reason uh, for Democrats to be concerned about that. But it really is just a question of if by the time they reach the voting booth in November, if they decide that they feel like Donald Trump is a better option than Joe Biden or if it's better to stick in that uncommitted category, it's really going to be interesting to see how these dynamics fall out for voters in Michigan going forward forward. But you can see why the Biden campaign might be a little bit concerned about this. 100,000 voters in a battleground state, a state where he won big in 2020, but it's always a state that's sort of uh, one that we're watching to see which way it'll go on any given election year. And so these are headwinds that the Biden campaign is going to want to head off and try and make sure it's not a domino effect as well with other states that'll be voting in the primary, maybe having similar protests uh, that could also make it so that the campaign is having to head these uh, different uh, ideas off at the pass uh, in these different states that are coming up. Super Tuesday, of course, just a few days away. And Corey, yeah. the danger, of course, is people staying home and not right. voting, right? Again, right. it's not necessarily them swapping over to Trump. But if they stay home, and this is true on both sides, which we're going to talk about in just a second, in, in a battleground state uh, like Michigan, where uh, sometimes the margin of victory is very small, it is important for Biden to pay attention to it. Yeah, and I, I, th I think that, that, that's a, a good point, Sue. I, I just look at, I look at this uncommitted um, movement, if you will, for lack of a better term, um, and just, just wonder, I guess, maybe what the end game here is. There are those folks, to Sue's point, who say, this is our protest vote, um, but come November, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that things will have changed um, to where I can support Joe Biden. Then there are those who say, I will never support Joe Biden. I believe there was a, a quote in, in the New York Times in an editorial recently where someone said, you know, short of Joe Biden resurrecting 29,000 dead Palestinians, I'm never going to vote for him. There is a faction of this uncommitted group who do want to see Joe Biden crushed politically. Now, the flip side of that is we know while uncommitted may have been on the ballot in Michigan, we know come November this is going to be a binary choice. It is either going to be Donald Trump or it is going to be Joe Biden. In the coverage of the uncommitted, um, I guess, issue, if you will, um, there have been reporters who have asked, well, if not Joe Biden, then it's going to be Donald Trump. Are you okay with that? And, and, and some folks have said, no, I'm not, um, but haven't gone as far as to say, I'm going to vote Joe Biden to keep that from happening. And then there are those folks that say, you know what, I survived four years under Trump. Uh, a little short-term pain is worth long-term gain if it means that the Democrats are finally going to listen. Um, I think it's tough because you obviously don't want to tell anybody why they should vote a certain way, or at least me as a journalist don't want to. I certainly don't want to shame anybody for their vote. But I guess what I always come back to is it's a binary choice. We have, you know, Donald Trump is not an unknown quantity when it comes to issues involving American Muslims and Arab Americans. We, we kind of know where he stands. Um, and then also, I guess, on the flip side for Joe Biden, what is the line? is, you know, Joe Biden has been working for ceasefire. You can say they're just temporary, but they are. He is working towards a ceasefire. Is that going to be enough? Is it, is it, is it conditioning aid to Israel? Um, is that going to be enough? So I think that's sort of the, the, the way forward here in terms of, from, from my end as a journalist, what I want to hear. Um, but I also just want folks to start being, you know, just blunt and honest. So you talk about talking to Trump voters who say, it's all about my 401k. That's why I'm voting for him. Okay, say that. Um, I think now we, it's for some of these folks, 
This is their number one issue, which in my mind makes them single issue voters. And it gets back to, to something that I've gone on and on about, about this election being about policy and not personality. Those voters who agree with Joe Biden, you know, 90, 95% of the time are some of them at least willing to walk away because of how he has handled the Israel-Gaza war. I'm just curious as to what those folks then think about the rest of the Democratic platform that Joe Biden stands for. And is, it, is, is that worth losing or uh, taking a step back in order to prove a point that Democrats need to listen to Arab Americans, Muslim Americans who are, you know, fed up with what's going on in the region? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. Right. And, and it also comes down to uh, are, are are the campaigns, is the Biden campaign able to articulate uh, exactly what the robust Democratic platform is beside this? Because, listen, I've said this to people for as long as I've been politically active. If you want to see dramatic change in your life, uh, vote for your city councilor, vote for your town manager. If, you, if you're looking to vote for a president of the United States, they only have to be directionally heading in the way that you want to go, and you only need to agree with them maybe 60% of the time. The rest of it, you're just not going to get that. That's not what happens at the presidential level. And obviously, this is a very life-or-death situation for many people, but at the same time, you know, the choice is what's the unintended consequence of you sitting out an election or uh, choosing a third-party candidate or voting for Donald Trump when your issue is uh, been clearly demonstrated by by Trump, who you know, let's not forget a lot of what's happening in Israel uh, with Hamas was put in motion by things that Donald Trump did, like moving the capital of Israel um, and and a number of other things. So um, you know, this is American policy at the very top level, uh, and folks are just going to have to consider again. It's a long way away November when it comes to when play, when there's wartime because a lot can change. But we, I do know that Joe Biden is working on this issue with Michigan voters and other Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans. Well, and I know this, I mean, it sort of just spotlights how unique of an election cycle we're in is just the fact that voters are looking at two entities that they have both, we've watched both movies. And so you're going into that voting booth knowing what Donald Trump stands for, knowing what Joe Biden stands for. So it's almost a really difficult election to go in with a single issue in mind because you know how they feel about this issue, that issue, and this issue, and what the repercussions will be of voting for this person or voting for that person. And so it's really interesting to see a protest vote in the primary portion of this. It's just a question of whether you stick to that single issue by the time we get to November. Right, right. Uh, let's move to the Republican side. Donald Trump walked away with 68% of the vote to Nikki Haley's 26%. She is continuing on as she promised. She is going into Super Tuesday. And for, for a long time, not a long time, but over the course of the first couple of contests, a lot of pundits were out there asking, what is she doing? Why is she staying in this race? And I think we were, we were really starting to get a clearer picture now. It's because there are so many of her supporters and other Republicans who say, and the lights just went off, uh, <laughs> who say, who say I, am, I am not going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, Matt, I want to start with you putting Nikki Haley aside because it is somewhat clear that Donald Trump is going to walk away with this nomination. Is that a problem? Is, is that a real threat to his reelection? Because as Sue has said on our air so many times, Donald Trump doesn't just need every single Republican to vote for him. He needs a lot of independence as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking about this since the summer, is that he can get the nomination. I think most people have felt that way, that the base inside the Republican Party is big enough, that we are polarized enough, that a lot of Republicans are just going to come home and vote for Donald Trump. But it's just a question of whether he can sway those that are undecided, those in the middle, as well as maybe some on the left who are unhappy with Joe Biden. And that is a heavy lift for the former president, I think, when you look uh, at any measurement of back, you know, looking back at what his presidency was like, I think getting those people who are undecided to come over to him is a difficult lift for him to make. But, you know, that said, I, you know, he has to convince that. He, that is his threshold uh, to meet. And Nikki Haley, I think, is hanging around, hoping, hoping that there will be that, you know, chunk of voters who maybe can give her enough delegates that by the time she reaches the convention, she can at least be hanging around and make a compelling argument of why she's still in the race at that point. Sue, what do you think? What do you think? Is this is this a big problem for Trump? Yeah, it's a terrible problem for Trump, and mostly because he can't pivot to a general election uh, message. And I'm always reminded of Mitt Romney when he was running for president, and his campaign manager said, you know, after the primary, it's like an etch a sketch. You just shake it and you start all over again uh, with a message to get those those candidates. I mean, those voters who are not Democrats or Republicans or are open-minded to vote for you. And Trump has no ability to actually do that. So he's going to be out. Um, you know, obviously, immigration is a major issue. We know what Trump did on immigration when he was president. And now he's going to be walking around talking about mass deportations. So he's going to be building on the uh, really draconian, extreme points of view that he has on things. And that's going to be great for his, his MAGA base. But it's not going to be great for those third, a third of Republicans who voted for Nikki Haley who won't vote for him. And it's not going to be great for the independent or unaffiliated voters. So I honestly don't see the math on how Trump gets to a general election victory. All right, well, we'll, we'll stick with, with Donald Trump uh, to move to our next topic. And I don't think we need to spend too much time on it. But uh, the Supreme Court earlier this week said that they are going to take up Donald Trump's immunity claim uh, as it relates to his January 6th trial uh, or case, I should say, that the former president charged with a, a number of counts um, conspiracy to to obstruct a, a an official uh, proceeding conspiracy, I believe, to defraud the United States uh, related to his actions in and around January sixth. Uh, Sue, were you surprised at all that the Supreme Court took up this immunity case? I'm not, and I, I'm having a bit more of a moderate reaction to this than a lot of pundits are. Um, I think it actually needed to be taken up in order to make sure that this was solid law, uh, whatever the decision ends up, whatever happens with the case, that the Supreme Court has waited on this. So I think that that's important. I, I am surprised it took them two weeks to do a one sheet, you know, a couple of paragraph uh, uh, ruling here. But at the same time, I've talked to a couple of Supreme Court experts asking, you know, what does this really mean from a just black and white uh, point of view? And a couple of them have said to me, well, it's the language in it saying that they agreed to decide whether and if so to what extent a former president can be immune indicates that it may not be a black or white issue that he is, a president either is immune or isn't immune. So when it comes to what kind of settled law this, this will, will, will um, make, that's going to be unknown. The bigger issue, of course, is the delay to the trial. So it becomes more likely that we will not have a Trump trial on this issue before the election. But to my earlier point, 
I don't see how Trump gets elected to president. So what, however long this takes to make its way through the Supreme Court and through the trials may be a moot point. So uh, before we get to Matt, Sue, I agree with you. I kind of took a more moderate stance to it as well. I know um, a, lot of, a lot of pundits, um, a lot of Supreme Court watchers are somewhat, you know, confused as to why the court would, would take, take this up when the, the appellate court that ruled on this gave a unanimous decision that, no, Donald Trump is not a king. He can't just claim immunity uh, for, for his actions. Um, but I think this, is the Supreme, this gives the Supreme Court the opportunity to do two things. If some justices are so inclined to want to help Donald Trump, and I'm not saying that they are, I don't want to make that accusation, to your point, it does somewhat run out the clock on the case as it relates to the timing of the general election. But the second thing is, I think this gives the Supreme Court the chance to sort of push back on those who would argue that this body has become 100% politicized. If you go back to 2022, when they ruled against Donald Trump in the uh, January 6th documents case, saying that he could not claim executive privilege uh, and keep documents from the January 6th committee. I think a lot of folks, and that was, I, I believe that was an eight to one um, decision. A lot of folks looked at that and said, oh, see, they're not totally in the bag for Donald Trump. I think that's maybe what this is. I, I think that this gives them an opportunity to say, you know what, this is a question of our legal system that if we can answer it once and for all, then it won't come up again. And, and we can say that, that no president is immune to any sort of criminal prosecution uh, that may come up. So this, I think this gives them an opportunity to get a little bit of cover. Now, do I think it's going to be another eight to one decision? No, I think you are going to look at the more liberal justices be able to pull perhaps a John Roberts onto their side, perhaps even an Amy Coney Barrett. I think a lot, a lot of people are already saying Alito and Thomas are going to vote in favor of Donald Trump. They're, they're guessing just like we all are. Um, so I, I think as to, to what you were saying, so I do take a more moderate stance. I don't, I think like a lot of people, I understand why they say they shouldn't have taken up the case in the first place, but it does give them the opportunity, and maybe this is cynical of me, but you know I love being cynical, for them to sort of cover their hides a little bit and say, see, we aren't as politicized as you think. We're going to rule against Donald Trump. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Chief Justice Roberts, you always hear him say that he's interested in, you know, um, securing the reputation of the Supreme Court as well. And so when they take up these cases, oftentimes it almost looks like Roberts is trying to indicate, look, we are an unbiased body and we are going to take a look at the most controversial of cases, regardless of who it involves, and we are going to try and rule the best we can because we consider us to be the greatest legal minds in our country and that we can make the determination for the country on whatever case may come before us. So I, I, I see what you're saying there. I think you know it makes sense for them to take this up. I agree with Sue that it took a while to finally come to the decision that they were going to do it and then even to push this all the way into April when they're actually going to hear the oral arguments for it. That's another thing that, it, that will raise red flags for a lot of people that were pushing this out till April and then how long is it going to take to get an opinion out whatever it might be and if in fact they rule against Donald Trump 
then the judge in this case is going to have to give three months or so for these two different sides to come up with their cases, which means we're not even starting this until late summer or so once a jury has been selected. So you kick this can all the way down the road and the tea leaves show uh, that this trial, this ruling, whatever might come of it, might not come out until we get all the way to the election or even past it. So you can see where the concerns are, but it makes a lot of sense for the Supreme Court to take it up, I think. All right, uh, let's bring it home. Uh, some news was made in Fort Point uh, this week. Governor Healy announced that another temporary migrant shelter was going to be opening up in that neighborhood. It's a shelter for migrant families and pregnant women. Um, the site itself belongs to the Uni Unitarian Universalist Association, but it's run by the United Way. Now, you've got a lot of folks in that neighborhood saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. Why here? Why in this neighborhood? Why in this facility? Which, when it was first announced, we heard Councilor Ed Flynn talk about the, the lack of showers. What they're going to be doing, it sounds like, is, is busing folks to a YMCA facility to allow them to shower and then busing them back. Um, but, Sue, we, we've sort of seen, you know, accusations of nimbyism here um, because some of these Fort Point residents feel like they didn't get enough of a heads up. I believe, according to The Globe, the Fort Point Neighborhood Association said it was first informed. February 8th, which is, you know, it's the 29th now, so almost three weeks ago, there was a community meeting that was held. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Sue, how you look at this Fort Point situation as compared to what we saw at the uh, Melnia Cass Rec Center uh, in, in Roxbury and how that was handled. Now, that differently, different sites, because that was a state-owned site. We're talking about a private site here, but I think the process appears to have played out in two different ways. Yeah, well, the rec center is about two blocks from my apartment, so let me check and see if I got an invitation to a community <laughs> meeting. Oh, no, I didn't. You know, I mean, look at, I don't know what part of crisis people in Massachusetts are having a hard time wrapping their brain around, okay? I think that the Universal, uh, the Unitarian Universalist um, Association, which Massachusetts loves to claim, you know, the, the, the non-religious, and I've, I've, I go to the services, so don't, don't email me, the non-religious religion, right, that does nothing but try to help people and be human-centered. You know, God thinks people are good, people are good, that's the whole idea. And the United Way, right, which we've all supported in one way or, or another. And and they are rising to the challenge to take care of pregnant women who are here. And I got to tell you guys, I mean, I've talked about this in the office. I drive by the rec center on Mil uh, the Melnia um, rec center um, over on MLK Boulevard at, at least five or six times, um, probably even more a week. And to see the young migrants who are there, and you can tell they're the migrants because they're wearing mismatched clothes. They've got their maps out. They're looking to find some place to go. I saw a young couple with a baby. You know, we, we, this is a crisis and we should be trying to help them the best that we can. And, you know, layer on this, the vote in Milton, which I know we're not going to get into, the vote in Dedham, and now the Fort Point, which is a brand new neighborhood, by the way. They should just be happy they have some place to live with their multi-thousand dollar condos and apartments there. But it, this is a crisis, so we have to rise to the challenge. And that's, you know, it's just making me crazy. All these Massachusetts reactionaries at the moment um, and plus people who just don't know what's going on and are not being supportive uh, it's just making me crazy Corey. and I know on, on Twitter it's sort of the the, the right wing right-leaning Boston greater Boston Twitter has made the point you voted for Maura Healy a very progressive Democrat who respects the right to shelter law this is what you get and right yeah this 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 is what you get mm-hmm yeah 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 I mean don't do the crime if you can't pay the time <laughs> sure
Sure. I mean, Matt, I what are your thoughts? Sue, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you can sort of feel the walls closing in here with this crisis. I mean, you see these different shelters being opened up. We were talking in the morning meeting today about how there were migrants sleeping at Logan Airport yet again. And then a lot of the time I spend up on Beacon Hill talking with both the House and the Senate as they work through the supplemental budget that Maura Healy's put forward to try and handle the shelter situation. You can hear the exasperation. You can hear the frustration. Again, I mean, it's just you can sense that the water is beginning to boil as they just try and put people in all these different places. And simultaneously, the frustration again really bubbling to the surface when you hear folks like Ed Flynn, you hear even Mayor Wu saying like the state needs to be talking with neighborhoods more and being, you know, open and honest about where these things are going to be placed. And so everyone is trying to find a solution. This is the situation we're in. But those questions about the right to shelter law, every press conference I'm in right now with the governor, that question comes up. She sort of sidesteps most times and sort of points the finger back at the federal government. But those questions are growing louder by the day. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, you know, just, just reading sort of coverage of this, uh, this, this community meeting, um, you know, there, there are the concerns about the buses that I, that I mentioned, um, you know, the fact that this facility doesn't have adequate showers. Um, you know, that was a question that they raised. Uh, they also said, you know, they were worried about... Um, crime and, and and stuff like that and you you've got a you know a, a spokesperson um for the i want to i want to make sure i get it right a spokesperson um the uh emergency assistance director for the healy administration saying you know we, we've got a good track record uh, of making sure that you know we keep this safe um i think should maybe give those folks a little bit of um reassurance but I will say this, the one, the one argument that a lot of them do make that I really kind of am curious to see how it does move forward is, what does temporary mean? Because they're getting a 90-day temporary certificate from the city, and then it looks like they could extend it for another 90 days if, if needed. So I think these folks do have um, a leg to stand on when it says, well, okay, if this shelter's going to come, okay, but what, is, what does temporary actually mean? And even if Congress were to do something tomorrow, Sue, on, on migrants and providing more money to the state government, like states' governments like Massachusetts, I don't necessarily know if that would change where, where these folks go because the hotels are already filled up. You've got the governor saying emergency shelters are at capacity already. I don't necessarily know more money doesn't necessarily create more space. No, but it, it does. I mean, I think like if we look at, at this particular shelter, um, there are there are places that we know around the state that could be used for this facility. I mean, obviously, being able to take a shower is a big deal. But if you are sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport, not having access to an immediate shower is is lower on the list of things that you're concerned about. So, I mean, I, th I think, Corey, um, you know, the, the mayors, the town managers, the governor, all the state officials are correct to keep calling for action from the federal government. But I think we're also going to see some action from uh, Joe Biden at some point regarding um, stopping the flow of migrants who are able to uh, ask for asylum. Uh, if those restrictions come into play via executive order or if Congress ever turns around and actually gives that bill uh, to, to Joe Biden, I think we're going to see uh, a slowing of migrants coming over. We, I, I saw some numbers this week that showed that the numbers are starting to drop as well. So I think this is a crisis that will be alleviated um, in one way or another, whether you agree with how they do it or not, soon. But there are other places that migrants can be housed in the state.
And just piggybacking off of that, that's what Maury Healy brings up every time she's asked a question about this, is that there was a bipartisan bill on the floor in the Senate that should have made its way, but Donald Trump came in and said uh, that they didn't want to vote on it because that would be, you know, bad for their election chances come November. And so she continues to point the finger back at them and say, hey, you know, you've got to stem the tide here. That's where all the issue comes from of us having to house all these people in Massachusetts. All right, before we go, we've got two tasting issue tidbits. We'll uh, go back to Capitol Hill. Mitch McConnell stepping down as Republican leader in the Senate. Um, he's had his health concerns uh, recently. We know that in his speech on the floor, he didn't really, I don't believe at all, make, make any sort of mention of that. Um, but he did say, you know, I understand the politics within my party. It's ready to pass, I'm ready to pass the torch to the next generation of leaders. Matt, what do you make of his decision to ultimately leave leadership in November? And what do you think his ultimate legacy is going to be? Yeah, well, I mean, he did make mention to that he's 82. That was the one thing that we got that sort of pointed back to health issues that he's had, you know, a hard year going through uh, 2023 and into 2024 here. You know, I think for Mitch McConnell, uh, it makes a lot of sense for him to leave in November just because he's been, you know, having these episodes on camera the couple times that he's frozen. And then also, I think for him, he's also gauging what's going to happen in November. I mean, him and Donald Trump have butted heads uh, ever since January 6th. And so if Donald Trump does indeed win the presidency again, I think he's probably just making a calculation that perhaps he wouldn't be able to get the leadership role uh, again for the next Congress or just not wanting to be in the room with Donald Trump and having to negotiate with him in that leadership role. As for his legacy, of course, I think most people are going to see Mitch McConnell as, you know, a skilled legislator, one of the most skilled in American history, both by the times where he chose to do things and also when he chose to not do things, which oftentimes could be even more effective, thinking back to when he didn't bring Merrick Garland's nomination up uh, for the Senate to take a look at uh, in between uh, the 2016 election there. Sue, your thoughts? Yeah, he's going to be uh, the victim of the unintended consequences of his successes, I think. I think if you went back in time and told, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell from 15 years ago that uh, he was going to be extremely successful at delivering a conservative Supreme Court and he would think there would be benefits that he could reap and the conservative movement could reap from that. And then he wakes up and Donald Trump is the president and Donald Trump has uh, is the one that's sort of reaping the benefits and taking it to an extreme that I don't think Mitch McConnell saw coming. So I think he's got a very um, a paradoxical uh, a legacy where he objectively was successful at what he set out to do. But in the end, uh, he's being driven out, I think, to some degree uh, by his success, by uh, Donald Trump taking over the party that he so carefully and hopefully uh, wanted to build to be this great conservative movement. I think um, you can kind of just look at his legacy in, in one quote. Uh, in 2016, he told CNBC about Donald Trump, quote, he's not going to change the platform of the Republican Party, the views of the Republican Party. I think we're much more likely to change him because if he is president, he's going to have to deal with sort of the right of center world, which is where most of us are. 
It is no longer Mitch McConnell's Republican Party. I think that that much is clear. It is certainly Donald Trump's Republican Party. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens come uh, the general election. Uh, finally, uh, some big changes coming to Boston, uh, Mattapan and Dorchester specifically. Uh, the city announcing a $44 million project along a three-mile stretch of Blue Hill Avenue that runs through Mattapan and Dorchester. We're talking dedicated center bus lanes where passengers board and exit via race platforms. The goals of the project... Um, speed up bus trips, around 37,000 people, I believe, ride, ride the buses through there every day, prevent car crashes, provide more shade, and make streets safer for pedestrians. This is another one of those uh, sort of NIMBY issues that, that, that we get. If you've driven through that stretch, you know it can be a hassle. You got folks double parked here and there, the buses coming through there, you got businesses. Um, Sue, your, your thoughts on the sort of early pushback to this plan, which has been in the works and, and it's been a debate that's been going on in the city for a very long time. Well, Corey, I actually had a, a sort of different reaction to it uh, the more I thought about it, because this summer, had Mayor Marty Walsh gotten his way, we would be hosting the Summer Olympics. <laughs> and part of the Summer Olympic plan uh, for Boston in, involved Franklin Park, it involved Blue Hill Avenue, and there was this time uh, where people were envisioning um, how to make these improvements to this traditionally black and brown, very Haitian, very Hispanic and Latino neighborhood and what it could mean. You have this great Franklin Park, the Franklin Park Zoo, you've got the Blue Hills skiing just, just, just down the street a little bit. And it could really, I think, gentrify the entire area had the Olympics actually come. And instead what we have is a mayor uh, with Michelle Wu who I think is actually looking to make these investments. And as you said, the, this, these plans have been in place for a while or this development and the meetings that went along with it to actually service the people who are living there now, many of whom, I think the majority actually, take the train or the bus, use public transportation to get to where they're going. And these businesses that have been there for decades uh, servicing that community. So I'm, I'm actually happy as someone who used to use it when I lived in Canton as a cut through when I worked in uh, the South End. Uh, there's a lot of commuters who use it. But again, we're making a movement toward uh, fewer cars on the road. Uh, and I think this is a plan that actually services the people who live in that neighborhood instead of looking to gentrify it. So I, I'm excited to see how it plays out. It will be years of headaches and me complaining about it. But nonetheless, I think the end, the end goal is a good one. Matt, this is going to be something that you're going to have to be covering down at City Hall because we know at some point it's going gonna, it's gonna to get there in terms of any sort of opposition or, or you know, questions about the plan itself. Yeah, I mean, and there's so much emphasis on trying to get people again out of cars and using public transit as much as they possibly can. So, I mean, we're going to be talking about this for a very long time because obviously a lot of residents are going to be unhappy about it. Those that drive their own cars, those business owners, those maybe pedestrians too, I don't know. But you know, everybody's going to come out and have their say on this particular issue. But to Sue's point, you know, there's a lot of positives here. People are going to find the negatives. Hopefully, let's, let's call, we'll find the middle lane and hopefully that'll work. Ah, I like that. I like that. We'll end on a pun. All right, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Taking Issue. Thank you, as always, for joining us. We'll be here at 1130 Sunday morning for another edition of Ad Issue. We're going to dive into the crazy situation involving Stewart Healthcare and the hospitals that it owns in Massachusetts and what their potential closing means for staff who work there and more importantly the patients that they serve. And then we're going to have a look ahead to Super Tuesday. Sue sat down with a very special guest. I won't tell you who it is because 
we want to have you watch at issue uh, to see who that is. And of course, we're going to be looking ahead to Super Tuesday, and we will be breaking down the Super Tuesday results in next week's podcast. But for now, I'm Corey, for Matt, for Sue. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.